Good morning once again. So good to have you. It is my it is my express purpose to keep you awake this morning, especially because we're going to be in Genesis chapter 36. And uh, I have to uh, I have to kind of preface all of this by saying that when you look at Genesis 36, you will find 43 verses that is mostly names, names that uh, I. I'm going to say this with all due respect to all of you. Names that when you get to a chapter like this, when you're trying to read through the Bible, you get to this chapter and you say, I think I'll go on to chapter 37. So I'm going to do you all a big favor. I'm going to read them all to you. So that you can hear them and see them up here on the screen. And finally say, well, we finally read through the scriptures. All right. Now, let me also say that these words or these names are here on purpose. God put them there. Therefore, there's a reason for them to be there. We're going to look at it as a whole. Therefore, we're going to see that what we're uh, receiving today really is just a history of the life or the generations of the person named Esau. Now, this is just an interesting thing that we need to get to because what we've been studying so far in the book of of, uh, Genesis has been the the life story of Jacob, uh, the son of Isaac, who uh, was the chosen one to be uh, the one to carry through the seed of, of the Messiah. Esau was the firstborn. And yet, if you remember, there was a prophecy given by God to Rebekah the mother of of Jacob and Esau, that the elder would serve the younger. And uh, so that came before they were born. But even in the womb of Rebekah, there was conflict. And it was a prophetic conflict to remind us that what we see in this particular chapter, at least in the history of this family of Esau, would continue and carry on its uh, antagonism, as it were, toward the children of Israel. But there are a lot more things that we need to deal with today that are personal and spiritual in nature that I hope and pray we will take home with us today. So if you will, turn to Genesis 36. Get my Bible open here. All right. See if I can keep it staying open. And let's begin by making sure my little clicker is going to work. All right. I don't know if somebody helped me with that or not, but we'll see. Genesis 36. Now, this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. When you run into this word genealogy in the scriptures, uh, it literally means the history of. And so we are getting the history of Esau, who is Edom. Esau, the name of the son of Isaac and Rebekah. Edom, what would become of his, uh, of his life as, as a people as well as a nation. And uh, we'll talk as we go along with that, about that. Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. Adah, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Aholibamah, the daughter of Anah. 
the daughter of Zibion the Hivite, and Bazimoth, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nebaioth. I would encourage you to underline Ishmael's name because Ishmael is another person that we've met who was actually the uh, half-brother of, uh, of Isaac. And uh, he also has a, a people group that uh, uh, also today are very uh, much uh, in the news. Uh, we'll talk about that again as we go on. Now, Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Bazimoth bore Reuel. And Aholibama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. And then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle, and all his animals. If we'll stop there for just a moment, this is half the verse. But if you stop there, you, you begin to realize that Esau really never had anything to complain about as far as, uh, as, far as Jacob taking the birthright and, and also the blessing, because in fact, Esau was also blessed, and he was also very wealthy. So keep that in mind. And all his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and he went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob. Now the explanation comes that for their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. We're reminded again that uh, this Esau becomes this nation of Edom, or a people group, uh, and actually becomes even more... uh, spread out and great as you'll, you'll notice in just a moment but a whole lot of years have elapsed since Esau appeared on the scene when we first meet with Esau and we're, we hear about his name we realize that his name means red and he was a very hairy kind of guy so he, he kind of stayed that way all of his life and so uh, when he appeared on the scene he was red and, and like a hairy garment <laughs> so that was just what his name re- represented But though he was the elder of twin brothers, Esau always seemed to be on the receiving end of Jacob's quick wits and moral indifference, which caused him to suffer many sorrows and build up a lasting anger against his sibling. But now the continuing story of Genesis must move on, as a lot of you are saying, yes, let's move on in Genesis. And like many before him, Esau moves out of the spotlight to make way for other characters to whom the Lord would work out His great eternal purposes. But before His exit, we're given a complete history of His genealogy, which may not be of interest to most people, but the details of this history of Esau's generation serves as a reminder to us that the impact of a man such as Esau will be felt long after his death. That is why I entitled this particular message, Choices Today Shape Tomorrow. Choices Today Shape Tomorrow. Now Esau wasn't without his honorable or decent moments, which we looked at not long ago, but his life as a whole, and those who would follow have a lot to teach us. Now what we need to begin 
with is this understanding that Esau was fundamentally a profane person. Now some of this is a little bit of a review for back when we first met Esau, but I've tried to make it as, as fresh as possible. Esau was fundamentally a profane person. Now that does not mean that all he ever did was just speak profanities. Profane really is a word that has to deal with life and lifestyle. How he lived his life. We can, we can, we can look at old terminologies back uh, in the early church when there was a, a difference made between the sacred and the secular or the sacred and profane. So that gives you a, a little bit of an idea of what it means to be a profane person. The idea is that if you were, uh, in, in, as, as far as in the sacred camp, well, that was, you were spiritual and you tr- truly believed in, in the God that you served. Whereas if you were in the profane camp or the secular camp, well, you only cared about things and not about God and not about others. To some extent you would think about some others, but there would still be some selfish ideas with that. So... To build on our understanding of Esau being a profane person, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. It is a passage I think we we read back uh, a while back when we were first introduced to Esau. But I want to begin in verse 14 because I, I want to show you where we all are to be as believers in Jesus Christ. Now we're told in Hebrews 12 verse 14 that we are to pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So I notice this is written to believers. Pursue peace with all people or all men and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully. In other words, observing and watching circumspectly, very carefully, lest anyone should fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble and by this many become defiled. Now, I want to focus your attention on that phrase, the root of bitterness. Because when we fall from grace, or we would fall short of the grace of God, much of what happens in our lives will turn toward the fleshly uh, uh, activities. And, and, And one great activity that is being focused for us here is the root of bitterness. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble... And by this, many become defiled. But notice verse 16. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. Now, it's very possible that the statement being made here by the apostle is, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau. So that is all directed toward Esau, but the focus is really on his being profane. And then we get this idea of, of an understanding of what it meant. Who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit his blessing or the blessing, he was rejected for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. He found no place. I want you to underline that if you have this in front of you in your Bibles. He found no place for repentance. And this was the, the, the real crux of the matter with, with, with Esau, with his whole life. You see, for Esau, material matters far outweighed spiritual matters and spiritual concerns. 
He despised his birthright as firstborn, all due to a sensual smell. If you remember back when, you know, he came into the camp, he was just so wondering what it was that Jacob was cooking up, you know. So it was due to this sensual smell and the desire to satisfy an, in, an intense hunger. All more important than the long-lasting privileges and responsibilities of the firstborn, which he was supposed to have. He showed little concern for his family when he decided to marry Canaanite women. I mean, he went totally against his father and mother's wishes. And they were presenting this to him as something that was actually godly and spiritual. Do not marry Canaanite women. Before the, what's the first thing he does? He goes and marries the Hittite women, which were Canaanites. He hated his brother Jacob with a deep passion. And even while he showed great restraint and even warmth when they finally met after 20 years, their relationship was never what it could and should have been. And I think all of us could relate to that. Either with a sibling or with someone else. Things will never be the same because we don't change. Or sometimes it is us that doesn't change. Or we who don't change. It might be the other person that doesn't change. But either way, things aren't the same and never will be the same. And the last verse here of Hebrews, here in verse 17, says it all because he may have regretted the things that he had done. He may have tried to repair some of the things that he had, 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 had caused with his brother. Which you would say, well, wait a minute, it was Jacob who did all the bad stuff, yeah? But Esau was the elder. Esau could have forgiven. Esau, Esau could have done a, a, a hundred things to have, have just repaired the situation. He could have even tried to repent himself, you see. But he found no place for it. He found no place for repentance. And that is so significant in the life of Esau. He found no place for it. Because he was a victim of his own nature, for he lived without the guarding and guiding grace of God. So no place for repentance. Even though he sought it, with, he sought it, it tells us, diligently with tears. Folks, we can seek a lot of things, but unless we choose to change. We could want the blessing of God and the forgiveness of God, but if we choose not to change, then we're not going to get it. You see. I think that that's very clear biblically. And now since it was determined that the land of promise was not big enough for bro both brothers, Esau chooses to settle in the area of Edom, which is southeast of the Dead Sea, outside of the promised land. Outside of the promised land where his whole family had gone to be where God wanted them to be. He chose to go outside of the promised land. And this would be the area where the city of Petra is located. When you, go to, when you go to Israel, you go down to the area of the Dead Sea. You look across the Dead Sea and you see the country of Jordan. That is, you see the mountains of Edom. The mountains of Mount Seir, as it were. Well, may I say that the flesh also lives outside of the promised land? The flesh lives outside of the promised land doing its own thing and trying to satisfy self and living outside the blessings and the promises of God. That's what Esau represents. Living outside the blessings and the promises of God. But, but that is the nature of the flesh, isn't it? 
That is the nature of the flesh doing what it wants, as Esau did in marrying the women that he was expressly forbidden to marry. Well, this very thing comes all the way down in history to the Apostle Paul, who in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, in verses 14 and 15, offers this not only word of advice, but he offers the word of God that is inspired through the Holy Spirit. And he says, do not, and remember he speaks to the church, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? That is a rhetorical question that has only really one answer. None. None. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? None. What communion has light with darkness? You can have a completely dark room, light a match, and it's not dark anymore. It may not be as bright as you'd like it, but it's not dark. What fellowship does that have anymore? None. What accord has Christ with Belial or Belial? Well, which is a word, and I, and, I, and I give you a little bit of an understanding of that here, because I mentioned that it is a worthless, lawless person. What, what accord has Christ with a worthless, lawless person? What accord? That would be like saying, if you've been here with our study of the book of Revelation, we've been studying the, the person of Antichrist recently. What, what accord has Christ with Antichrist? None. I'm, I'm really asking these questions. Or what part is a believer with an unbeliever? None. So the advice that Isaac and, and, uh, and Rebekah gave to their son Esau, sound advice, spiritual advice. But what did he choose to do? He chose to go against that. Consider those who suffer the consequences for their disobedience in these matters. Just consider those who suffer the consequences for their disobedience in this kind of matter. And don't forget again that this passage was written to, to believers. Now the flesh may prosper in this life. The flesh may prosper in this life, but in the end the consequences will be grave. And I mean that literally. There will be grave. Because you can't take anything with you. It goes back to the dust of the earth with nothing of good eternal value to show for it. And this also is something that Esau represents. Wanting to get everything that you can in this world, but when it comes down to it, you can't take any of it with you. What are we living our lives for in this world then, unless we're living them for Jesus Christ? Unless we're living them for the God who created us, unless we're living them for the cross of Christ, unless we're living them for the Word of God. Everything that is eternal, everything that has something to do with our everlasting life. And folks, we're going to live everlasting lives. Some of us will live everlasting lives in the presence of the God who created us. And we will worship Him and serve Him for an eternity with joy and gladness. There will be others who will live an eternal life separated from God with no joy. As Jesus himself put it, there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now which would you rather have for an eternity? I've always liked this verse, Micah 6 verse 8. We used to sing this song a lot. Hope we can sing it again someday. 
But here in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, we get this particular encouragement about how we are to live our lives. And it does translate very well into the New Testament. How, he, he, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good. Has God not shown us what is good in this life? He has shown us, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly? And to love mercy. And to walk humbly with your God. You see, when we choose to walk according to our own ways and our own whims and all, we're no longer choosing to walk humbly. Now we choose to walk proudly. But this life, this walk, is a walk with blessing. He's shown you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Now we've got to get back to those names. Told you I'm doing you a favor. Verse 9 of Genesis 36 says, and this is the genealogy of Esau. This, this seems to be repeating itself over and over. That's okay. Sometimes we need to remember where we could have been and how repetitive a, a, a useless life would be. This is the genealogy of Esau, the father of the Edomites and Mount Seir. Now you'll notice that I've underlined these two groups, the Edomites and those in Mount Seir. Actually, they say Edomites in Mount Seir, but there's a, there's, there is a group from Mount Seir. We'll talk about that later. Uh, and then it says, these were the names of Esau's sons. Oh, by the way, when I, when I did underline those names, it is for a great purpose here, as, as you'll see in a moment. And these were the, the, the names of Esau's sons. Eliphaz, the son of Adah, the wife of Esau, and Reuel, the son of Bazamoth, the wife of Esau, which I think we've already heard, haven't we? It's, it's okay. As I said, it's repetitive. The sons of Eliphaz were Teman, Omar, Zepho, Gatam, and Kenaz. And now Timna was... Oh, by the way, if you want to find any names for your kids, you know, if you're... There's a few good ones, right? Just kidding. Don't, don't, don't pick those. Uh, now Timna was the concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek. Notice the word Amalek there, the name. Uh, sound familiar to any of you? Underline it, please. Okay. She bore El Amalek to Eliphaz. These were the sons of Adah, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Reuel. Nahat, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These were the sons of Bazimoth, Esau's wife. These were the sons of Ahilobama, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anah, the daughter of Zibion. And she bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. Now, I've underlined these few names of interest from this section, specifically the Edomites, the inhabitants of Mount Seir and the Amalek, the father of the tribe known as the Amalekites. Now, how many of you heard of the Amalekites? Okay, good, good. A lot better than last night. I don't know if they were hearing me or so. I said, how many of you heard the Amalekites? I said, but they did wake up finally. It was a long day. It was cold and everything. All right. So they, you know the Amalekites. Well, many years later... In the time of Moses, when the children of Israel were sojourning from Egypt to Canaan, Moses respectfully asked permission from their cousins, because the Edomites were the Israelites' cousins. Remember that. So they asked permission of the Edomites to pass through their land. 
He actually gave assurances of their good intentions and promises to pay for whatever they consumed along the way. But what was Edom's response? What was Edom's response? Turn to Numbers 20, verses 18 uh, through 21. Then Edom said to him, to Moses, So you shall not pass through my land, lest I come out against you with a sword. Wow. What a response. So the children of Israel said to him, Well, we will go by the highway, and if I or my livestock drink any of your water, then I will pay for it. Let, let me only pass through on foot, nothing more. And then he said, You shall not pass through. So Edom came out against them with many men and with a strong hand. And thus Edom refused to give Israel passage through his territory, so Israel turned away from him. Edom had not changed during the generations following their father Esau. They had not changed. As for Amalek, he carried on his family tradition too. They would become sworn enemies of Israel. Let's read verses 14 through 16. Uh, These were the sons of Ahilobama, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zibion, and she bore to Esau uh, Jeus, Jalam, and Korah. Uh, These were the chiefs of the sons of Esau. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn son of Esau, were chief Teman, chief Omar, chief Zepho, chief Kenaz, uh, chief Korah. I believe in the King James, it's Duke. I think they use the word Duke there. But you'll you'll not find the Duke of Earl here anywhere. Uh, Or chief Running Deer, whatever. Chief Korah, chief Gatam, chief Amalek. Okay, so there's Amalek again. These were the chiefs of Eliphaz in the land of Edom. They were the sons of... Now, I read all of that because we need to understand how wicked the Amalekites were when Moses was leading the children of Israel to the promised land, just as bad as the Edomites. Uh, The Amalekites, listen to what they did. They, They attacked those in the rear ranks of the Israelites, those who were the weaker and the sickly ones, as we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19. It says there, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. Remember, he says, God to his people. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around, in the land which the Lord your God has given you uh, to possess as an inheritance, that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven, you shall not forget. What a statement of judgment will come down upon the Amalekites, as God has, has, has said, because of their treatment of uh, the children of Israel. All coming out of Esau. You see that? All coming out of Esau. Those of Mount Seir would find themselves in opposition to King Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, many, 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 many years later. And by the way, if there was any doubt as to the Lord's attitude toward the actions of Esau's descendants against Israel, those doubts were dispelled by the prophet Obadiah when he spoke out against the Edomites. Now, by the way, there's a, there is a, a small little book, one book before the book of Jonah. It is the prophecy of Obadiah. It's one chapter long. 
And I just want to give you three verses from that chapter. It says, Behold, this is God speaking, I will make you small among the nations. He's speaking to the Edomites. I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. In verse 6, he says, Oh, how Esau shall be searched out, how his hidden treasures shall be sought after. Now, now this is actually a judgment, so you'll understand. Seeking out the things of Esau to take from them. And then in verse 10, it says, For violence against your brother Jacob. Here's the reason. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. This is God's prophecy against Edom. So, God hasn't closed an eye or a blind eye to this nation. As a nation and as a people. And something else to remember, as I'll reiterate later. And that is the struggle of Jacob and Esau that began in the womb of Rebekah. It's still going on today. That's why this is important. Not to shrug off a chapter just because it's got a bunch of names. Oh, by the way, look at verse 17. I'm going to read all these names. Remember now, my, you know, my, I'm doing you a favor. So that, you know, this chapter, which you probably skipped over back when you started reading Genesis at the beginning of the year, we're going to catch up. These were the sons of Reuel. Well, because, you see, because we, we study the Bible verse by verse. Well, we're going to read the Bible here verse by verse. So these were the sons of Reuel, Esau's sons, Chief Nahath, Chief Zerah, Chief Shammah, uh, Chief Mizah. These were the chiefs of Reuel in the land of Edom. These were the sons of Bazimoth, Esau's wife. And these were the sons of Ahilobama, Esau's wife, Chief Jeus, Chief uh, Jeush. Chief Jalam and Chief Korah, these were the chiefs who descended from Ahilobama, Esau's wife, the daughter of Anna. Uh, these were the sons of Esau, who is Edom, and these were their chiefs, or dukes, as it were. Uh, these were the sons of Seir, the Horite, who inhabited the land, Lotan, Shobal, Zebion, Anna, um, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishan. These were the chiefs of the Horites, the sons of Seir, in the land of Edom. Wake up! i just making sure you're staying awake with me. Okay. And the sons of Lotan were Hori and Hemam. Uh, Lotan's sister was Timnah. Uh, these were the sons of Shobal, Alvan. By the way, this is an interesting name, Alvan, because in that language, Alvan meant wicked. So it kind of already gives you a little picture of what they named their kids in those days. Uh, wicked. Uh, Manahat, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. Uh, these were the sons of Zebion, both Aja and Ana. This was the uh, Ana who found the water in the wilderness as he pastured the donkeys of his father Zebion. These were the children of Anna, Dishon, and Aholibama, the daughter of Anna. Uh, these were the sons of Dishon, Hemdan, Eshban, Ithran, and Cheran. Uh, these were the sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zaavan, and Akan. These were the sons of Dishan, Uz, and Aran. Uh, these were the chiefs of the Horites, Chief Lotan, Chief Shobal, Chief Zibion, Chief Anna. Uh, Chief Dishon, Chief Ezer, and Chief Dishon. This is tough. I mean, my tongue's already messed up. Uh, these were the chiefs of the Horites according to their chiefs in the land of Seir. So notice, there is a distinction here of, of, the, of the families, but it, they still come from Edom or, or from Esau. 
now these were the kings who reigned in the land of Edom before any king reigned over the children of Israel. Now this, th- this is a section that we need to pay attention to. Now we're getting kings' names. Kings. Uh, and it says, Bela, the son of Beor, reigned in Edom, and the name of his city was Dinhaba. And when Bela died, you notice that I underlined the word died. Significant, significant, significant. So, underline it in your Bibles. Jobab, the son of Zerah of Bozrah, reigned in his place. And when Jobab died, notice again, there's seven of them, by the way, that die. When Jobab died, Husham of the land of the Temanites reigned in his place. And when Husham died, Hadad, the son of Bedad, who attacked Midian in the field of Moab, reigned in his place. And the name of his city was Avit. Uh, when Hadad died, Samla of Masrecha reigned in his place. And when Samla died... Saul, uh, which is not the same Saul uh, with David, you know, that's, that's an earlier Saul now. Saul of Rehoboth by the river reigned in his place. When Saul died, Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, reigned in his place. And when Baal Hanan, the son of Achbor, died, Hadar reigned in his place. And the name of his city was Paul. His wife's name was Mechatabel, the daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mezahab. And these were the names of the chiefs of Esau, according to their families and their places by their names. Chief Timna, Chief Alva, Chief Jetet, uh, Chief Ahilobama, Chief Ella, Chief Pinon, not Pinon, but Chief Pinon, uh, Chief Kenaz, Chief Taman, Chief Mibzar, Chief Magdiel, and Chief Firam. These were the chiefs of Edom, according to their dwelling places in the land of their possession, Esau was the father of the Edomites. All right. We're done. Got through it. All right. Yeah. You guys can clap. Uh, It's all right. Uh, Just remember, it was a favor. Now take note. Now take note. The seven times the word died is used in reference to the kings that reigned in the land of Edom. It is good to be reminded when worldly positions are reported, such as kings, that regardless of the height of a person's position in the world, death is going to greet them someday. Death is going to greet them someday. Now, at this time, Israel was still just a family. But Israel would become a nation. And as long as they were a family, they were going to be a nation. They had a king. Their king was Almighty God. So even as small as they were, they still had a king. And by the way, their king never died. And he never dies. Now Jesus, who is their king came to this earth voluntarily, took upon himself flesh, so that he could die. And not just for the Jewish people, but for all who would believe. And so, in rising again, we have a king that never dies. The world wants their kings. Some of them treat them as gods. We have a king who is a God, the only God, 
that will ever be God. Above all gods, our King is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And His name is Jesus. Now, what happened to Israel? Later on, they saw all these nations. They had kings. And they would say to the Lord, Lord, we want a king too. But he was their king. Finally, he just said, okay, you want a king? Let me show you what kind of king you are going to get. And Saul was raised up and they found out what kind of king they had. But it wasn't until David came along to be the kind of king that God wanted on the throne of Israel. Because he was in the line that goes all the way back to Seth, through Noah, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, King David. Because our king comes from that line. King, kings were important here. This is why we've taken the time to look at that. But our king deals in eternally, in, in eternal things, in eternal concerns, and eternal matters. Therefore, it's a good thing to prepare for eternity. The Edomites didn't prepare for an eternity with their kings. Their kings died. But we can prepare for eternity. Position in life, by the way. Position in life has nothing to do with position in eternity. Whether a person is a king or a pauper has nothing to do with their eternal security. Or even their eternal destiny. The scriptures are very clear. I want you to consider the words of Job. When he said, naked came I from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then notice what it says of him. In all this, Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. I came into this world naked. I leave the same way. I don't take anything with me. Blessed be the name of the Lord who takes and gives. Some kings think they're going to last forever, but they don't. And the reason is because all have sinned, as Paul said in Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. That includes us here. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is why it is so important for us to focus our attention upon the one who gives us eternal life. And that is Jesus himself. As the Apostle John writes in his first chapter of his gospel, he says he came to his own. He came to the Jewish people. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Who were born not of, the, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. To as many as received him, Jew and Gentile, he gave the right to become the sons of God. And the children of God. I want to I close this chapter with a couple of thoughts. It is no coincidence... That the age-old antagonism between Jacob and Esau should be continued in the time 
of Jesus Christ. And as I said earlier as well, the conflict continues even to this day. Not only just the children of Edom and the descendants of Edom, but the children of Ishmael, who we also see have intermarried with the Edomites. And you think of Israel today being this little strip of land the size of New Jersey, surrounded only by enemies. All of them connected in some way to this genealogy as well as the genealogy that we read in the, in the life of, uh, of, of uh, in the history of, of Ishmael. Not, only to, not to mention many others as well. And we as a nation better be careful that we don't become an enemy of Israel. But let's go back to the time of Jesus because that antagonism was right there in the life of Jesus himself. Because when our Lord Jesus stood before Herod, he was standing in the line of Jacob before a man who stood firmly in the line of Esau, for Herod was an Idumean. The Bible tells us that Herod was an Idumean. I-D-U-M-A-E-A-N. But that is just the Greek word for Edomite. Herod was an Edomite. It was left to this descendant of Esau to heap the ultimate shame on the Son of God. If you look at Luke 23, verses 11 and 12, notice what it says. Then Herod with his men of war treated him, Jesus, with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. You know, we always, we always think it was the Romans who, who uh, put the robe on him. But here Luke tells us that it was Herod's men. Arrayed him in a gorgeous robe. Sent him back to Pilate. And notice this verse. That very day Pilate and Herod became friends with each other. For previously they had been at enmity with each other. They had been in hostility toward each other. But now because of Jesus, they have a common enemy. Oh, what strange bedfellows hatred makes. And I have to tell you that this very idea and this very thought actually continues on to this day and time. If you've been with us for any amount of time on Wednesday nights in our study of the book of Revelation, we have seen how the activity of the religion of Islam, which is not a religion more than it is a political ideology and a cultural ideology followed by a religious ideology. But how much of an effect that culture has become to these end time prophecies that we've been studying. Just the fact that Herod and Pilate become friends, a united world, against what? And against whom? 
against Israel, the nation that God loves, and Christ, the one who came to save them. They put Jesus on the cross. You see why it's important to study the Word of God from Genesis to Revelation? We're actually doing that. Genesis on the weekends, Revelation on Wednesday night. It's incredible how all the ties are being made. By the way, if you're really thinking about coming to study Revelation, come on. We're, we're going to be here till the rapture. Okay, so we'll be studying it for a while. So now let me tell you this. Going back to the very title of this message, the choices that we make today, the choices that we make today will shape our tomorrows. The choices that we make today will shape our tomorrows. The bitter root that began in the heart of Esau and its spreading influence is so clear because it impacted for ill will, not goodwill. It impacted for ill will far beyond anything that he could have ever imagined. And his name is attached to it all the way through. If we go back to one scripture to close, and it's not going to be one scripture, but if we go back to one scripture to close, let's return to Hebrews. So go back to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, and I'm just going to give you the first two verses, 14 and 15. It says, Pursue peace with all people, or with all men. Pursue peace. This is a scripture to the church. It is a scripture for us today. Are you pursuing peace with all men? Do you see the kind of contrast that our worldview has in direct distinction to that of Islam today? That they're only pursuing, uh, they're only pursuing peace based upon people succumbing to the will of Allah and to Muhammad as their prophet. And they'll use the sword if they have to, which they do a lot. But Jesus said, My peace I give to you. Not of this world will I give you peace, but my peace shall I give you. It's a peace that is sustained by the love of Christ. Pursue peace with all people and holiness. Oh, by the way, don't forget that. We need to pursue holiness as well as believers in Jesus Christ because it says without which no one will see the Lord. Pursuing peace by pursuing the Prince of Peace through holiness. Living a, a life separated from this world. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Oh, the root of bitterness, how painful it is. How it has divided families, divided couples, divided churches. The root of bitterness is in fact demonic. It's demonic to be bitter and to show that bitterness through actions and words.
toward another. When Jesus said, love one another as believers. But he also said, love your enemy. Love those who despitefully use you. That really changes the game plan for us. It really makes it clear that a lot of times we are trying to live things according to our ways and not God's ways. Bitterness becomes a way of showing our hearts. I asked you the question this morning when you came in, do you love God? Because that was the very same question that Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Do you love Jesus? Feed my sheep? Care for my lambs? Give them the truth. Show them the love. Turn to James. I'm going to close with this, honestly. But James chapter 3, and I, I want you to see what I said earlier, that bitterness is something that is demonic. James chapter 3, verses 13 through 18 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Who is wise and understanding among you? Let, let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. In the meekness of wisdom. Jesus was our greatest example of what meekness is. By the way, meekness is not weakness, is it? Jesus said, come to me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and you shall find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's wisdom when we humble ourselves. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. You know that this one particular verse is, 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 is actually just broken all the time by those of us in the church? Because we have bitter envy and self-seeking, but we boast and lie against the truth. We put on an air of humility. That's called false humility. Or we don't say something outwardly to somebody, but we'll go on behind their backs and say some, some things. That's lying against the truth, folks. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. Bitterness is earthly, sensual, all about the flesh and feelings, and demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. Oh, don't we just not, don't we just, don't we just want to get out of getting, or, or just getting away from every evil thing? I would want to, wouldn't you? And who wants to be confused about anything? The Bible tells us that the Lord is not the author of confusion, so He wouldn't want us to be confused. Why are we putting ourselves in positions of being confused? Or places of being confused? But the wisdom that is from above... Oh, I need to really latch on to this. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure. And then peaceable. Notice, peace. 
gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Not only are we to have peace, but we're to make peace. And the only way we can is to know Jesus Christ. Because He, the Bible tells us, is the Prince of Peace. Because He said, My peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, give I to you. My peace. One of the greatest tells that God has changed our hearts is that we have moved from a position of restlessness to rest in Christ. We are now at peace with the one in which it, it, to whom we were having great wars with. We're not at war with God anymore. When a victory comes in battle, you have peace, finally. But the victor, the victorious, is Christ. And when we surrender to the one who is victorious in our lives, we have peace. And we serve Him. But we choose to. We're not forced to. We choose to. Esau never had that peace. All 43 verses of chapter 36 was really all about a people as a whole that would have no peace and they would continue to extend their bitterness towards Israel. Does that mean that individuals that were Edomites could not come to the Lord? Oh no. The church is made up of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. So it doesn't matter what your line is, you can get in line with the only true line, which is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ. And I hope that you are in the line of Christ. And if not, today would be a wonderful day to give your life to Jesus. Shall we pray?